Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and good morning to those of you on the West Coast. Good afternoon to those of you, like me, on the East Coast. My name is Ray Suarez. I'm host of Public Radio's World Affairs, and I'm pleased to be the moderator for today's Commonwealth Club program focused on America's rural opportunity. Welcome to all Commonwealth Club members and to the general public. Today's topic, America's rural opportunity, is a critically important one. As America has learned over the past several years, what happens in rural America can have a deep impact on the country, economically, socially, politically. And this is a unique time for this issue. Politicians on all sides of the aisle are focused on this topic and on the pandemic. With the movement of professionals away from cities, when new federal funding gives us perhaps a once-in-a-generation opportunity to promote economic development in rural areas and help close some of the divides that exist geographically in our country. But what do we need to understand about rural America and this moment to get these efforts right? I'm pleased to be joined by three people who can help us understand these issues and these questions. First, let me welcome Congressman Ro Khanna from California. He represents many of the communities around Silicon Valley, but is deeply committed to rural economic development. Matt Dunn is the founder and CEO of the Center for Rural Innovation, a nonprofit action tank which is leading rural economic development and tech-enabled entrepreneurship efforts nationwide. And Katie Knight, the president and executive director of the Siegel Family Endowment, a New York City-based foundation focused on understanding and shaping the impact of technology on society. One quick important housekeeping tip before we get started with today's discussion. If you have a question for any of our speakers or for me, please use the YouTube chat feature. Questions asked there will be submitted to me throughout the program, and I'll try to get to as many of them as I can during our program. All right, let's begin. Congressman Kana, why does someone who represents Silicon Valley, well, if I think about many of the towns in your district, formerly rural America, uh, care so much about this issue. Why is economic development for rural areas so important now? And what has Congress done recently to focus on rural economic development? I appreciate, Ray, uh, the invitation. It's great to be on the panel with uh, Katie and Matt. There are uh, two reasons. One, it's a matter of our uh, economic competitiveness. Uh, we need to cultivate talent uh, in uh, every community in this country. We're competing with nations of a billion people. Uh, there is a, uh, a shortage of uh, uh, available uh, people to hire in uh, the Bay Area. There is a crisis in terms of housing. Uh, so you can't just uh, continue to uh, grow uh, in an indefinite way in the Bay Area. Uh, and we need to look uh, to other communities uh, to be able to have more entrepreneurs, to be able to have more talent. Uh, there is a, a genius and talent in many communities, and it would be a shame if we don't uh, unleash that. And the second is a, from a matter of uh, uh, equity and, and empowerment. You cannot have in this country a situation where you have the wealth generation concentrated in, in a few select cities uh, disconnected from uh, the prosperity of other places. And you have uh, rural communities in many places, parents worried about their children leaving, congregations declining, hometowns sinking into decline. 
and on the other hand, you have a large concentration of wealth that's disconnected from the prosperity of other parts of the country. That hurts the project of uh, liberal plural, pluralistic democracy. We need uh, to empower people to prosper uh, in the communities in which they live uh, in a digital age. Well, you've put a lot out there, and I want to come back to many of these themes. Uh, Matt, what is the Center on Rural Innovation? Why did you start it? And what are we seeing right now in communities nationwide that make CORI's efforts focused on tech-enabled entrepreneurship so important? Uh, thank you, Ray, and and thank you, uh, Ro and Katie, for joining this conversation. And uh, I want to just say that Ro, Ro has spent some really incredible amounts of time and energy uh, in rural places and bringing the attention to the potential there, which is fantastic and how we got to know each other. Uh, and Katie uh, and the Siegel Family Endowment has been a supporter of the Center on Rural Innovation uh, from just about day one, uh, understanding the potential and the impact that it would have. We started the Center on Rural Innovation in 2017 because because we recognize that there was a new divide uh, that had emerged in our country since the 2008 recession, uh, where uh, urban uh, communities came roaring right back uh, past their pre-recession levels, and rural places, not so much. Uh, in fact, uh, even as of January of 2020, uh, before the pandemic, uh, not even half of the rural counties had gotten back to their pre-2008 economic levels. Pandemic hit, everyone fell, but rural places fell to, to new lows. Uh, the question then becomes why? Uh, and if you look at the data, uh, it's because of three things. Uh, there is uh, a decline in rural entrepreneurship that took place in the 20 years prior uh, to the 2008 recession. Uh, automation uh, and globalization actually created millions and millions of jobs uh, in the United States, and it removed millions and millions of jobs. Uh, the problem is it almost exclusively created them in cities and almost exclusively removed them in rural. Uh, and so when you look at that uh, in terms of the types of employment, we now have a situation where rural America represents 15% of the nation's workforce, but only 5% of the digital economy jobs. And those digital economy jobs in software and data science uh, are the ones that provide unbelievable economic mobility. Uh, and the companies that are driving automation uh, represent the, the best chances for uh, wealth creation uh, in this age of automation. And so we started the Center on Rural Innovation to close that gap, uh, to make sure that that kind of, of uh, job creation, economic mobility, and the resilience in the face of automation could take place across our geography, uh, and so that everyone in the nation uh, could benefit from it. Well, Katie, why does the Siegel family philanthropy care about rural development? You're sitting in Queens, New York, a dense, fast-growing, diverse, exciting place, uh, but you're thinking a lot about what's going on in places where a lot fewer people live. Why? Yeah, I mean, for us, more than anything, it was a question of why not? The philanthropy that we are aiming to do at SFE, and really this is driven by our chairman's urging that we look in the corners and that we do things that are not the things that any other philanthropy or the government would do. We consider ourselves and our philanthropy to be society's risk capital, and if we're not 
taking, making risky bets, then we're not doing our job. And back in 2017, when Matt and I were first talking about this idea, it was certainly a risky bet. And it seemed like the sort of thing that could have significant payoff, because if you believe that the only places in this country where innovation can happen are on the coasts, you're absolutely wrong. There's actually opportunity, there's intelligence, there's drive, there's entrepreneurial spirit across the country. And what we need to be thinking about is how we can create the conditions for entrepreneurship, for tech-enabled growth, for access to the innovation economy to thrive in places that are not just the major cities on the coast of the country. And now perhaps a few areas where tech companies are, are moving second headquarters or growing and expanding. I think, you know, on a personal level, I've also grown over the past few years to really love this work to love small towns, actually now splitting my time between the city and the small town in Pennsylvania. So it has taken on a, a, a more personal note for me, but, but really more than anything, it seemed like the smartest thing to do. And to the congressman's point, if we want to compete globally as a country, we need to be thinking about how we can increase economic prosperity across the board, not just in a few places, not just in a few communities. But hasn't the spirit of the age really been pushing in the opposite direction? to go where uh, there are concentrations of people ready to come together and do this work, uh, that you don't have to go looking for them, that you don't have to subsidize this kind of activity, uh, but to uh, plant seeds in places where things are already going, and a lot of things are already pretty fertile. Katie? Yeah, I mean, a crowded garden will have plants that are being choked off. So we definitely want to increase the areas that we're seeding. I think my mom, who may be watching, will appreciate that metaphor since we, we garden together. Uh, but but more than anything, there the, the pandemic has certainly brought to light that you can work remotely successfully, that we can collaborate and communicate across time zones, across geographic divide. And so if we have, through technology, the power to expand opportunity, why wouldn't we? Why shouldn't we? Right? We can definitely think differently about where you need to be to create a successful company or to participate in business growth. And something that I've learned through our work with Corey and that Matt and I have talked about a lot is that not all new companies need to be focused on the next, you know, Uber for whatever, or the next uh, platform that you would traditionally think of as a tech company. There are so many things happening, um, whether that's in ag or otherwise, where technology can be a force multiplier. And you need smart people who work in those industries already to have access to the opportunity to create and invent new ways to grow those industries, to create new industries, and to do more than what they're able to do right now. And so by bringing tech into other industries, we're also going to improve economic opportunity across the board. Congressman, if I came to your district and said I wanted to break ground on a new farm for plums and almonds, people might look at me like I was nuts, even though that was a cornerstone of the economy in your part of the world for a long time. Rally uh, of the heart's why, delight. Yeah, yeah, well, why, why do we have to be mindful, uh, almost design these solutions? Um, getting out of almonds and plums happened organically, and in response to specific economic forces, um, why do we have to be thinking this way about rural areas? Well, I think, Ray, uh, Katie is absolutely right that, that no one is saying that we want 
uh, every part of the country to become Silicon Valley. It'd be a very boring world, a very boring nation if everyone is uh, programming for Facebook and, and, and Google. The point is, though, that technology is transforming uh, every industry, uh, whether it's precision agriculture, whether it's digital warehouses, whether it's uh, Netflix when it comes to entertainment, whether it's telemedicine. And the people in the rural communities know this the best. They understand the transformation. But right now what's happening is that transformation and digitization, that wealth is being extracted, that wealth, those jobs are being done either offshore or in certain areas of the country. And so all of the, while they used to have a manufacturing economy that actually would bring in revenue, uh, now they have an economy where the underlying digital infrastructure is one they're not participating in and it's depleting them of wealth. So what we have to figure out is how do we empower them to, to be part of a digital infrastructure, which is going to exist, that's a reality, uh, so that they can be creating wealth and so that they're putting tech in service of their local industry. Matt, uh, how do you keep it from being just the lowest value added work, the back office work that ends up being shuttled off to rural areas? No, it's a, it's a great uh, question. The, the other piece that I just want to talk about is the biggest surprise we had in doing this work was the need to do narrative shift. Because what you opened up with the question about was this this conventional wisdom that has grown really only recently, that the only place you can do innovation and uh, groundbreaking work uh, is in places with massive concentrations of people. If you look at the history of the last hundred years, rural places were fonts of innovations, usually because they had to solve a problem on the farm and they didn't have anyone else to turn to, so they did. And then it turned out that the, the thing that they created to deal with something on the farm turned into a good part for a, a, a washing machine, right? And suddenly you had Maytag growing up in the middle of rural Iowa. So there is, there is uh, a, a recent narrative, uh, especially around the technology of our time and automation of our time, uh, that somehow it could only happen in urban places. And it's just not true. Uh, and I, I had the good fortune to grow up in, in rural Vermont, uh, which was machine tool and dairy um, before those industries uh, began to decline. And I got an early job at 25 with a, a technology company that was based in Wilder, Vermont, and we grew it to 120 employees and served commercial printers all over the world. So that seemed like a natural thing. Uh, and what we really are spending a fair bit of time is telling uh, stories is making sure that people know that rural America has that capacity, has that ingenuity, that they have startups that are actually doing uh, pretty well, and that it can happen there. And that narrative shift is important both for us as a nation and for investors and uh, policymakers and the like, um, but also for folks in rural communities who have just been told now for two decades, oh, you know, you can't do that there. If you have student debt that's crushing on you, you have to move to a city to get out of it, even though all of the extra money you'd be making would go into housing costs, right? So 
So we spend a lot of time just sharing these unbelievable stories of communities in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, uh, or Marquette, Michigan, uh, or, or Pine Bluff, Arkansas, where folks are making this happen. And, and that's uh, super important, and it's why the, the work that Rose done when he's gone out on the road uh, and why Katie and the Siegel Family Endowment that supported some of that uh, narrative shift work um, has been so critical. Um, but your other question is, how do we make sure that it's not just uh, you know, the, the next level of outsourced uh, jobs um, or extractive jobs in rural places. Uh, and that's why we focus on certainly job training uh, for these kinds of digital economy jobs in our, our 20 network communities, but also on entrepreneurship so that there is actually the ability to create new solutions to marketplace problems. Uh, and those you know, range from using uh, AI uh, to detect suicide in large institutions uh, to a person who worked in uh, auto service industry, right, as a mechanic, decided that the way that people deal with folks who are signing up for a, a car repair is crazy and painful and partnered with a technologist to, to solve that. And he's building out that company uh, in Wilson, North Carolina. And by doing that, you, you are both helping to make sure that companies uh, that may be large national companies based in the congressman's district could find talent in, you know, pods, working out of co-work spaces in the places where they actually want to live, but so that we also have some ownership of production uh, in rural America, where people are able to unlock their ideas and create companies and the wealth that goes along with that, with that ingenuity. Because in the age of the internet, there should be no limit to where digital economy jobs and scalable tech entrepreneurship can take place. Well, I'm glad you brought up narrative shift because you have to move a lot of things to shift the narrative, Uh, not just a uh, Sunday weekend piece in the New York Times, but a whole ecosystem of other players, um, investors, uh, educational institutions, a lot of assumptions that end up having a a sort of inertia that has to be uh, pulled forward. How do you do that? It's a big job and a long one, I assume. Uh, It is. uh, And we fortunately have some friends uh, along the way. Um, But what we have found is that it's important to actually uh, create opportunities for resources to go to these communities to stand up accelerators uh, in places like Platteville, Wisconsin, uh, and Taos, New Mexico, um, to make sure that those then entrepreneurs are connected to resources in this moment where people don't think to look there. Uh, We actually stood up our own uh, seed investment fund uh, because we were trying to convince, you know, investors to come and and put resources uh, behind these really great companies. And they're like, well, I don't know. Is that really a thing? Uh, But enough of them said, look, if you want to do the work of seeking them out will be uh, investors in your fund. Uh, and we now have six companies already in this uh, portfolio that anyone would want in any seed investment fund. So we're, we're, we're changing the narrative 
by empowering communities to just go and do it um, with resources, with capacity building efforts. And then we're, as I said, spending a lot of time uh, helping to get that word out um, through as many mediums as we can. Uh, and with the help of, you know, Ro, I don't know how many days you spend on the road uh, going to these different places, highlighting these really wonderful examples of, uh, of rural communities that are embracing this uh, innovation cause. But it was uh, made a big difference. Well, I think Matt's doing extraordinary work. Uh, and, and Katie, I appreciate all, all of the foundation support for it. I mean, I, I think that there, this has to be done as Matt's doing in the organizations, doing uh, empowering rural communities and recognizing the uniqueness. It, you never, you can't have Washington or Silicon Valley say, we're going to plop up a, uh, an accelerator uh, here, or we're going to tell you how to become uh, digitally proficient. What What you need is the uh, community itself, uh, partnering with the school districts, with the community colleges, with the uh, local elected officials, coming up with a plan, uh, understanding that there is a tech multiplier and that there needs to be uh, a new economy. Uh, and what, what I found is uh, th th these communities want this for themselves. What's elitist is not to say, uh, let's have tech uh, enable jobs. What's elitist is to make an assumption that somehow rural communities only want you to talk about uh, of farming in a traditional sense and agriculture in a and a, a construction in a traditional sense. They get what's going on. Uh, they understand the new economy. They want to be part of the production and the, the modern day wealth generation. Uh, and, it, and for so long, we've written uh, huge segments of this country off. And that it was, has been evidenced in our politics. And the biggest conceit has been go move. Uh, you know, I started out a lot of my conversations in Silicon Valley would saying, how many of you want to move to Paintsville, Kentucky? And very few hands go up. And then I say, well, why do you think they want to move anywhere here? They don't. People usually want to live in the communities they grew up in. They want to live next to their family. Yes, if you have ambition to, to move, that's great. Uh, and you can, but no one should be forced to move because their hometown is sinking into decline. Congressman, this sounds like one of those issues that's tailor-made for building cross-party consensus because of the peculiarities of where districts are and who comes from what district. You should be able to find a lot of partners in this argument. Is it easy? We have. I, I do want to add one layer of important uh, uh, complexity to this is that we have to talk about race and gender at the same time. I mean, we can't have a conception that, uh, that rural communities uh, and, and have a first of all, rural communities are, can also be uh, rural black communities, rural uh, Latino communities. Uh, but the point is that there are a lot of black and brown communities that have also been left out of the innovation economy. And uh, as the racial wealth gap has increased in this country, increased. Think about that. We ended Jim Crow and the racial wealth gap is higher today than it was uh, in the 1980s. You're never going to solve that if Airbnb has no black or Latino entrepreneurs are part of the are part of the uh, the wealth that's being generated, and the reason I say that is it's too too often sometimes it defaults to this idea of uh, white working class towns that have been left out, and I think that has raised it into the political consciousness. But a lot of uh, black and brown communities have been uh, left out too, and have been left out for many many years, many decades. Uh, and they have to be an important part of the coalition. And that coalition exists uh, in, in Congress. Uh, you, you know, you have someone like Jim Clyburn, who's the leading the champion, uh, leading champion and uh, making sure that 
it, it, communities are uh, empowered to be part of the digital economy. And the someone like Hal Rogers, who represents Paintsville, Kentucky, a Republican who talks about it being Silicon Holler and understands the value of that for, for his community. So uh, obviously politics often gets in the way, but substantively this is an area where you can have a broad coalition. Katie, uh, what's the role for philanthropy world in all of this? Yeah, I think there are, there are several ways in which we can help drive this forward. The most obvious is that we're funding sort of innovative operations like Corey to look at this work and not to look at it in a vacuum with just, even though Matt, I, I think you're great, it's not just Matt alone thinking up ideas, right? It is a network of communities that are thinking up the ideas for themselves and getting the support and scaffolding that they need through Corey, and that is one piece that is easy for us to jump in and provide funding for that. I think as any philanthropy wants to do, we also want to provide intellectual resources, connections, access to other capital. So as we can, we try to make that happen to facilitate that. And I think I've also tried to play my own part in participating in the narrative shift that we're trying to drive because other philanthropists and other folks who want to listen to those in philanthropy will hear it better from, from others in the field. So I have been beating the drum about rural opportunity as often as I can, and especially to the point that we were just talking about that, you know, there's opportunity to promote equity, gender equity and, and racial equity in rural America, just as much as there is anywhere else, that it is not, you could not possibly have areas compressed solely of white men, though the prevailing narrative would have you believe that all of rural America is just white men. And that is, that is not true. And I've met brilliant people of color and brilliant women and brilliant men who are, who are working on these issues across the, across the country. And really think that there's an opportunity for us to to shift the picture that people have in their minds of what rural America is. And, and again, to come back to, you know, what does national prosperity look like? It looks like people from everywhere, whether that's geographically or from any background, having the chance to thrive in the economy that we're building. I want to remind you to uh, add your own questions at the YouTube channel, and they'll make their way to me. Uh, for Matt Dunn, one listener asks, what are the challenges in building out rural broadband infrastructure? And especially, what institutional barriers, cultural, legal, policy, whatever, are most limiting? So it, it, we're in an interesting moment in our country on a policy front with broadband. Uh, and the congressman mentioned uh, Congressman Clyburn, and, and he has been a stalwart supporter of making sure uh, that broadband is the equivalent of uh, rural electrification just for our century, uh, because it really has gone from being a, a nice to have to critical. And the pandemic really laid bare. Uh, what happens when you have a divide, uh, what that means for people's ability to make a living, for their children to get education, and for uh, their, their parents or grandparents to be able to get uh, health care without having to expose themselves at, you know, at, a, at a health institution to, to the virus. Uh, so we're, we're at this moment where people get it and, and want to make it happen, uh, and we're, we're seeing an interesting coalition come together around it. Uh, so resources are certainly an issue, especially when you get into rural places that, uh, you know, the marketplace just won't naturally bring high-speed internet. 
it was the same was true uh, with electrification. And so uh, with the uh, Rural uh, Electrification uh, Act, uh, there was funding, a lot of funding, but also creative enterprises to be able to deliver this, whether it was a municipal electric uh, companies, cooperative electric companies, all kinds of public-private efforts to be able to make sure that that could be done. Those same entities are on the forefront of closing uh, the broadband gap. Uh, and they are in really well poised, frequently you know, owning the poles and the bucket trucks to be able to uh, attach uh, world-class gigabit speed internet uh, to uh, people's homes, to allow them to skip like four generations and have future-proof broadband. Unfortunately, in a lot of states, uh, for reasons that we, we could talk about, but uh, they have actually prohibited uh, municipal electric companies and cooperative electric companies and public-private partnerships in general. And it's just, it's just crazy. It does not uh, bode well for actually solving this problem, particularly for the places that are, are not uh, currently connected with even uh, cable speed uh, broadband. So in fact, those regulatory barriers uh, tend to be as big a, a problem uh, as as the funding uh, piece, there seems to be a real will, and in fact, uh, Congress passed in their uh, ARPA funding uh, a significant amount of money to put a dent in that deployment. Um, but at the end of the day, if there isn't the partner on the ground that can make it be a, a community asset uh, that can understand that you don't have to make a quarterly. Re turn uh, of a huge margin in order to deliver something like electricity or uh, or broadband um, to be able to build it out. So we're, but there are we're, really dollars and cents involved here. Absolutely. Uh, having somebody on the 15th floor of a 23-story apartment building get broadband mm -hmm. is a very different cost profile from somebody who lives 10 miles past the county road where it peters out and becomes gravel. And somebody's got to pay the added costs, and somehow <laughs> that has to make money for somebody. And I guess building an architecture is something that we only did in fits and starts for telephone, for cable television, for uh, electricity delivery. Congressman, is there growing sentiment to look at broadband internet as simply a a requisite amenity of a 21st century household that has to be regarded like electricity. Absolutely. And, and it, and it has to be affordable too. I mean, so it, it can't, it's just not about the access, but it's about uh, making it uh, affordable. And I, I think it comes down to uh, not just your economic participation, but your participation as a citizen. I mean, look at how many uh, public forums uh, are uh, now online. And if you're not able to participate uh, both economically and, and in those forums, uh, you're really being deprived of uh, your status as a, as a citizen in our democracy. Uh, and people make a glib assumption that uh, these uh, forums, uh, and obviously they're problematic, but Facebook or Twitter uh, are all upper middle class. That's actually not true. If you Pew had a very interesting study that uh, they are equally represented with uh, the working class in terms of Facebook on, on these platforms. Uh, and uh, uh, and black and brown communities and, and, and women. And so uh, the, the point is that many people want to participate on them, and those who are being denied that access is a real uh, exclusion uh, to equal democracy. So uh, I would argue it's absolutely essential. Uh, 
Katie Knight, uh, a lot of the coverage of rural places during the pandemic was all defined through the lens of urban upper middle class people. Those rural places came onto a mental map once urban people went to them to escape cities during the pandemic. So, uh, you know, it's a be careful what you wish for kind of story. Yes, it was great to have people talking about rural places, but kind of a drag that it was th through, the, through the viewpoint of people who were going to bring urban amenities with them. Uh, almost kind of cultural colonization. Here we come with our good stuff from the city. Where can I get a good cup of coffee around here? Uh, how, how do you unbuild that? I mean, talk about narrative shift. The idea that there's already something good that's going on in rural America that doesn't need urban people to come bless it uh, would probably be a good place to start. Yeah, you know, coming from New York originally, I definitely have seen that narrative up close and personal with with folks who have found suddenly places on the on the Hudson line on Metro North and 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 beyond. And definitely we need to think differently about mobility, right? It, it's not a problem for people to move. And I think what we would like is for people to think beyond dense urban centers as the only place they can move. I think part of what Matt and I have been driving at is we want to make it as viable to live in a rural town anywhere in this country as it is to live in New York City, Philadelphia, Silicon Valley, and the like. Um, so that piece of it is great. That's net positive in many ways, but absolutely you don't just want this to be about how we recreate tiny New York cities or tiny Brooklyn's in rural areas, because that's not possible. It's not sustainable and it's not fair and equitable for the people that have been there. And it misses the point entirely. I think of what we've been trying to do in terms of diversifying the sort of entrepreneurship that's occurring. So if all we do is bring the same types of companies, the same types of jobs to new places, we will not have achieved the full potential that we could have if we actually invested in the people that are already there and the ideas that they have and the unique attributes that communities across the country possess that will allow them to create new companies, new types of jobs, new types of industry that will, again, make us globally economically competitive with other countries. I think we have had a great history of exporting tech innovation globally. We've had some incredible tech invention happen in the United States. We're also falling behind in that regard. And if not now, then when will we realize that the way to push forward and become competitive and uh, again is to diversify the sort of things that we're producing because now that we've laid out the playbook for how you create a Google, anyone can copy that. How do we think about the playbook for the next thing that, that we'll create and what that might bring to the table? So really as part of the, the narrative shift, we want to continue to focus on the people that have been in communities and the cooperation and collaboration that can happen when you come to a new place and you bring with you some new ideas and new energy and a commitment to being a part of solution making, but you don't just come wanting to bring, you know, your same things that you already have someplace else. So it is a bit of a, a give and take. And there's, there's some really, I think, wonderful things that are happening now that we've got the conversation uh, in sort of the national media landscape a little more, but there is, there is more to do. And by the way, I think having local media 
strong local media networks, which is something that we have not had in the last several years, can also help with driving narrative shift. And so investing in, in local media, investing in the opportunity for people to get online and onto communication platforms and sort of share their message from where they are rather than just having it be driven by the sort of larger newspapers or organizations and that are coming from coastal urban areas is, is also really important as we think about the communications infrastructure of the country. Matt, earlier in the conversation, you talked about growing up in Vermont and about the places in Vermont that were part of an industrial network in New England. Well, I'm from Brooklyn, and I can take you to a lot of places in Brooklyn and a city where I worked for many years, Chicago, where the factories that decamped from those places headed to rural America in many cases in search of cheap land, cheap labor, cheap utilities, and no unions. And they made a very important stop in those places before they left the country altogether and went to Mexico and Asia. Can we break that cycle? Can we make a value proposition to American companies uh, that is different about why it makes sense to be outside Eastern Pennsylvania uh, or even go back to the Connecticut River Valley where there's a lot of underused land? Is it not just a search for the lowest cost inputs in the 21st century. Absolutely. And I, and in some ways, and this is going to sound strange, the, the movement towards automation has put a premium on the innovation and creativity of individuals over just the, you know, raw brute labor of, uh, of, of individuals uh, physically. And I think in some ways, if we embrace that, that's super exciting. And I want to be clear that the ability to do innovation and be creative is, is in everybody, right? It's, it is not just folks who, you know, go off to Stanford or get a PhD from, from MIT that can do this. The number of organizations that in the last 10 years have shown that people with non-traditional educational pathways can actually go into these innovation types of jobs all the way through to full stack developers has proven that that kind of ability to create ideas and to create solutions uh, is available to to everyone. And that includes uh, folks in manufacturing. Uh, You know, the automation of manufacturing has actually allowed for more uh, advanced work where individuals who really know how to work a CNC maker who really understand that as a, as an art form. They may not see it as, as that per se, but then they're being able to be contributors to constant improvement in that manufacturing process uh, because they're not relegated uh, to a job where they're doing the same automatron thing over and over and over again. So I think we can have a different way of looking at it and not just going to the uh, to the cheapest uh, possible uh, uh, way of engaging because the U.S. will will just lose uh, if it's just the, the race the bottom, uh, and that's not where we're going to succeed. Um, but we have a chance, I believe, to really uh, recalibrate and say we can find that kind of innovation, that kind of talent, uh, that grit that will just open up 
the possibilities uh, and hopefully get us away from what uh, you know we sometimes refer to as uh, uh, whale hunting economic development where you know economic development directors are told they're supposed to go after some big company to land a, a parts manufacturer and throw every tax credit possible you know access to water access to everything in order to get it to land there only to see that 4 years later it decides to renegotiate and go someplace else so if we're building entrepreneurship if we're creating the potential for people to actually create take their ideas and turn them into uh, companies, into uh, social enterprises that are solving real market problems, and you're actually training people to be able to participate in those types of jobs in ways that are flexible so that they can adjust as technology advances, as automation continues to accelerate, which in the pandemic, it's only gotten faster then we can actually not have this be something where you just you you go to rural because it's inexpensive or easier to do business but it's because there are extraordinary people who want to live there uh who are ready to bring their ideas to to full potential congressman a lot of this conversation is carried on in a spirit of resentment and mutual incomprehension people talking past each other, rural people about urban areas, urban people about those who live in rural areas. And we see that in our politics constantly. We see it in debates over things like the, um, the, uh, the tax deductions uh, that are now part of the 2017 tax code uh, that now have the acronym SALT. We see it in the way uh, the, the pandemic relief packages were debated. A kind of uh, anger, a kind of disdain. And I wonder, without getting all touchy-feely about it, whether there's actually some imperative for national healing uh, that that undergirds this conversation, that we have to uh, take some steps toward uh, unbuilding that mutual incomprehension and spreading the wealth a little bit is not just charity, but making for a more integrated polity, a country where we all have a shot at doing good things. I think that's uh, very well expressed. And I would argue it's not just the distribution of wealth generation, but it's also the possibility of distributed uh, teams on common economic projects. If uh, the, the great philosopher Charles Taylor said that uh, what we need is to increase our democratic intelligence uh, and, and that democratic intelligence increases when citizens are working together. And right now there are very few avenues in which we're engaged in civic work together. Uh, one possibility of a decentralized tech economy is you may have someone from Atlanta, from Silicon Valley, from Chicago, in a rural community, all on the same team doing a common project to see uh, some of the stereotypes at least lessen uh, some sense of commonality that may have uh, a, a cultural multiplier effect, not just an economic multiplier effect uh, for, our, uh, for our democracy. But I think one of the points you raised earlier, uh, and that Katie had uh, a great insight in as well, is this tension and, and I think we ought to acknowledge it as a tension. And that is that uh, while uh, communities uh, welcome uh, economic uh, development and technology, they also don't want to lose their way of life. They don't want uh, Starbucks on every uh, street corner. 
And uh, the reality is, you know, I was reading somewhere that in Idaho, 60% of their uh, the, the, the uh, migrants from the United States to Idaho are Californians. And I was on a call with the senator and he didn't know he's a, a, a you know, decent person and a Republican. He said, oh, we don't want all those Californians coming. I don't think he, he knew I was on the call. Uh, and then, but it turns out a lot of the Californians, uh, they respect the Idaho's, Idaho's way of life. And it's not like they're bringing their values there. Uh, they're open to, to, to listening and, and, and fitting in. But there is this tension. You, you can't um, expect that an economy uh, will be able to embrace a digital component and not uh, transform to some extent. On the other hand, they, they don't want to be overwhelmed and not recognize their way of life. And that tension that's playing out in communities is part of the tension that's playing out uh, around the country. Uh, and how we uh, adjust to that, I think, is a big challenge for a democracy. Matt, I see you nodding your head. What do you want to add? Well, I think I think the congressman is exactly right. And it's it's just it's super interesting to see uh, when when new folks move to a rural place, uh, you know, getting getting used to that, uh, getting used to uh, differences in expectation. The fact that there's not always someone to do that thing for you, that everyone actually just sort of pitches in and gets it done. Uh, and it's a and it, and it creates sort of a, a collective, which can be sometimes overwhelming. And in fact, you've seen stories about people who are like, ah, I'm going to move to rural America. It's going to be perfect. And then it turns out it's a little different in some cases, very cold or uh, there isn't as many of the amenities around at a moment's notice. Uh, but as as I think folks get more engaged, uh, I think there's real opportunity for broader uh, conversations, uh, that people are really hungry um, at a local level to be able to be connected, to be able to bridge over what's happening in the, the, the national animus um, and solve uh, local things uh, together. Uh, and and this, this moment in time is when the, these kinds of things uh, can happen. Uh, and it and it goes in in both directions. I mean, you were you were talking about. Um, I mean, it, it's interesting. A lot of the people who are moving to rural places are actually from rural places originally, and just haven't felt like they had any chance of being able to do it. I mean, I. I I had, you know, through through dumb luck, the ability when when Google recruited me to head up their community affairs program uh, to when they said, well, how soon can you move to Mountain View? I said, never. And, and eventually they they caved. And so we opened a, a little office in White River Junction, Vermont. And I had the, you know, the 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 opportunity and the privilege to run a, a small, uh, you know, division at Google uh, from an old bread factory building uh, near the rail intersection uh, at the border of Vermont, New Hampshire. Uh, and being able to work with a distributed team across the country. Uh, and so the, the chance for people to actually come home, to be in the place where they feel like they're their, their whole selves and their best selves uh, is super exciting. And we don't need all of the, all the people in the city to move to rural places, right? We really, it's okay. Uh, but we just need to make sure that we're getting to a place where uh, there's a really positive equilibrium where you don't have the housing crisis and unbelievable costs in, in urban areas, um, and you have economic opportunity and the ability to be aspirational in rural. Uh, and that's what uh, I think all of this conversation is about. Equilibrium is a good word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go ahead, Congressman. Well, 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 I think equilibrium is a good idea. way of describing it. You know, the, that's a, a thoughtful expression. I mean, I, I think that's absolutely right, that 
you want an equilibrium and you want a plurality of communities. You, you don't want everything to look like Silicon Valley. You want communities to be culturally rich and diverse in, in all of those ways. I mean, when people think of diversity, they just think uh, immigrants in Silicon Valley. No, diversity could mean rural ways of life. It could mean uh, ways of life in black and brown communities. It's, it's, the, it's, it's what makes us uh, so extraordinary as a nation. I want to get some specific examples of the kinds of things we've been talking about through the hour, just so people who are watching this program can get a really good, tangible understanding. I, you've been doing great, all three of you, believe me. But I, I want to uh, give people some specific examples of the kind of thing you've been talking about uh, to make it real for them. Uh, so if you want to, whoever wants to jump in, uh, I think it would help. Uh, we've been talking a lot about theory. What does practice look like? Right. Let me give you just a, an example from some of our communities. And again, we've been uh, at this now for four years, and we have uh, 20 communities uh, as a part of our network that we've helped with you know, assessment and strategy and securing funding and then becoming a community of practice uh, in a really lovely collaborative way. Uh, so because our, our thesis is that one innovation hub in a small community is going to struggle to succeed on its own because it won't have the deal flow or the talent flow. But if you create a collective, you can actually get some network value, especially in this moment where we're trying to shift the narrative, shift investment practices, and shift where people look for talent. Uh, but these are, you know, very individual places. Uh, and there are, uh, you know, there's a saying, which is when you've seen one rural place, you've seen one rural place. Uh, so uh, we we have communities that come from uh, obviously a broad geography, but also uh, uh, different economic origins. Uh, you know, Pikeville, Kentucky, that was uh, completely focused on coal, uh, and then a couple of years ago they did an analysis and found out there were more uh, people in Pikeville uh, working online for tech companies than there were licensed coal workers. And they went, "Oh, huh, something is happening here. We need to rethink about." Uh, you know, who we are and what we can do. Uh, you've seen other, you know, communities that are uh, deep in the, in, in the black belt um, that have struggled with a wide variety of, of different economic challenges, uh, along with the issues of, you know, you know 400 years of, uh, you know, racial oppression. And that's uh, big and deep. Um, but in uh, Pine Bluff, Arkansas, they are coming together in, in a community in the historic district, which actually was a mecca for uh, black entrepreneurs in the South uh, to be able to bring back that kind of energy uh, in partnership with the HBCU that's in that area and building out an innovation center um, that's, that's making it happen. Uh, and then Cape Girardeau, Missouri is a member of our network that uh, w actually was when they, when they came uh, to us to, to get some support and building out their program, we realized they were well ahead of anything um, that we were doing uh, even in our pilot um, because a couple of people from there, uh, this is in Southeastern uh, Missouri uh, in the upper Mississippi Delta uh, had decided that they wanted to be able to have uh, a technology shop, a, a project shop. Uh, and so they started building one. They were working with the university uh, and then they realized they needed talent, so they started training folks to be able to be coders and part of their uh, their their um, operation. And then they started a youth coding league 
because they were like, we've got to start earlier and we've got to have people changing their views about what their kids could become so they can change their views about what they can be. Uh, and then they started uh, startup competitions uh, with a small investment fund, uh, which led to uh, people like uh, Show Rust, who grew up there, moved away, was in California with a large advertising firm, came back home to do his own startup that was based on bringing AI to branding, uh, thinking he was only going to be there for a little while while he got it up and running and realized that what had emerged was a whole tech ecosystem and that he could grow that company right there. And he's uh, doing great. He's hiring people. And they're now attracting more people who are coming home, having benefited from the great education that was there, and now realizing that they can realize their dreams uh, in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Uh, so those are uh, a few examples that uh, is, is, are worth sharing. Katie? Yeah, I think in addition to all of the work that we've seen happening across the Cori network, there are interesting small pockets. There's a an organization called Sprocket in Paducah, Kentucky, that has an incredible makerspace and is doing amazing work uh, trying to push forward uh, tech and innovation, sort of knowledge and learning there. And there are also other organizations besides Quarry that are working with communities around the country. You know, at Aspen, the Community Strategies Group is working nationally with, with rural areas on economic development and growth. There are other folks in philanthropy that are now looking at rural and hoping to make investments and, and make change that will have us uh, sort of spreading wealth and opportunity across across the area. But I think there's a lot more that could be done. And so we want to take some of these small examples and turn them into more of a norm and less of uh, just bright lights. We love the bright lights, but really what we're looking for is for it to not be about just a handful of places, but about all places having the opportunity to get to where they want to be. Congressman, do you need more company of um, members from smaller districts, more densely populated districts, talking up these ideas, uh, a sort of um, coalition of, uh, of allies uh, to, uh, to, to talk up America's rural possibilities? Or is this a, is this a lonely uh, row you're no, going not- right now? It's not lonely at all. I think that there are a lot of members who understand uh, the issue. The question is, how do we prioritize it? So I agree with uh, uh, Katie uh, that it, it can't just be uh, pilot programs. I mean, so the, the two examples I have is uh, Zoom partnered with Claflin and HBCU and uh, Representative Clyburn's district, and they're committed to giving 10 scholarships and hiring these people, young people after uh, they graduate, um, and, and it's a big success. And uh, Accenture partnered with uh, Des Moines Community College in uh, Western Iowa and Jefferson, and they're uh, creating these jobs of $60,000 in this small town, and, and that's a success. Uh, but the question is, how do you uh, scale this? And uh, I think it requires innovative efforts like Matt uh, and, and Katie for sure, but it also requires federal policy. Uh, you know, for example, you could require that 10% of a workforce that uh, gets a major federal contract uh, should have a tech uh, base in a rural community or in a black or brown community. That would transform incentive. I mean, that's just one idea. And here, what I would say is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a progressive politically, and I uh, love the uh, idea of where they say Joe Biden is going to be the next FDR. I would absent hopefully his record on race or that Joe Biden is going to be the next LBJ, absent hopefully LBJ's record on foreign policy. 
But one of the problems with that uh, analogy is that the economy of the uh, 2021 is not the economy of the 1930s uh, or 40s or the economy of the 1960s. Uh, in 2025, there are going to be 25 million digital jobs in this country. To put that in perspective, that's going to be more than the manufacturing and construction jobs combined. And that's not even counting the hybrid uh, manufacturing job that is a tech job. And if we're not thinking and legislating for those jobs that are careers, then we're doing a real disservice to communities uh, and basically creating a, a model in this country where the wealth generation is going to be in districts like mine uh, and in a dystopian vision, uh, fulfillment centers are going to be the jobs of places in other parts of the country. And that is not the economy I think most Americans want. They don't want just uh, a, a social safety net a paycheck and stability. They want to be part of the productive entrepreneurial capacity of the United States. You're not going to get there without uh, rethinking the digital economy's distribution. Well, as we uh, come toward the end of our time, I want to give everybody one last shot at this, one last shot at our uh, nationwide audience to, uh, to close the sale. Uh, are we looking at a moment that's been created by the pandemic, that needs to be exploited, that we have to move quickly on? Or do we really have to take a very long view? Because some of the things we've been talking about during this hour are going to be hard to pull off. Katie Knight? It is definitely both. I think, you know, crisis and opportunity hand in hand, right? So we absolutely want to leverage what is what has come out of this moment that we're in, which is an increased knowledge and awareness of the divide, the digital divide, especially uh, increased knowledge and awareness of rural areas and what they have to offer to people who are looking to, to migrate and the opportunity to have incredible investment from the government and the private sector in improving our country's infrastructure broadly. And we at SFE take a broad view of what that means, what infrastructure means. Um, we've released a paper last year arguing for physical, digital, and social infrastructure to be equally valued in this conversation. And that is the moment that we're in right now where we can invest in those things. But we absolutely have to recognize that those investments are not going to pay off tomorrow. That success is going to look different depending on the place that you're investing and what they have already going and what their aims are. And that we will see long-term dividends pay off in terms of the increased growth of our overall economy and opportunity for us to have a vibrant national landscape of, of entrepreneurship, of business and economic development. That will not appear tomorrow, but we absolutely should be investing in it now. So Matt Dunn, um, move fast and go slow at the same time? Well, I, I think Katie is absolutely right. I mean, we're feeling a, a real urgency of now. Uh, and uh, but the ultimate impact, if you're trying to see, oh, what's the result next, you know, next month, next year, it's going to take longer for that to actually have its implication. But we've got to get started. We both have this moment where people's aperture has been opened to thinking, rethinking where people can work, can innovate, uh, can bring ideas to the table. Uh, we have a moment when people are really thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And as Katie pointed out, uh, rural, and Roe as well, rural America is not white America. And if we're really committed to that vision, 
we can't leave out uh, black and brown communities in rural places. You just you, you, you can't do that. And if you do, um, then you're missing the folks who have the biggest challenges for economic mobility in our country um, and have the most uh, you know <laughs> pent up potential uh, to be able to deliver. Uh, but the other urgency is that each year that goes by where there's this massive divide, uh, rural places uh, are seeing their, their capacity dissipate. And it's so much harder to get started again when you've had to lay people off from you know, the Economic Development Office. So the prospects of applying for a federal grant becomes that more daunting and difficult, uh, or you don't have the, uh, the, the same uh, number of students, and so you're having to lay off teachers, and you're seeing a, a vicious cycle within the community where people don't want to move there with their families because they're worried that the school is in decline. We have to act now to close this gap that opened without much fanfare. Right. There was not a lot of reporting uh, from 2008 in, until, you know, after the 2016 election uh, about this, this widening gap, uh, even though it was the most pronounced and actually saw the first net loss of population uh, in rural places in 60 years. It wasn't during the farm crisis. It was during that period of, of, of the divide. And the final piece is the urgency of the divisions in our country. And this isn't about, you know, a particular presidential election, but the divide is so large right now. Uh, and that is, is threatening uh, our democracy and, and the ability to find common ground around things. And it would be uh, a big error to not think that this uh, difference in economic opportunity is not a driving force uh, behind that, that threat to our our, our common sense of, of democracy and moving forward as a country. Well, Congressman, you're going to take us out. Uh, can I be optimistic that um, five years from now, 10 years from now, we'll see um, made manifest some of the things that Katie and Matt were talking about, both the urgency and the necessity for things to be different? Because the safest thing to do in a crisis is what you did before. And it sounds like very much on the menu now is doing something different. Yes, and here I think uh, the pandemic has been a game changer because it forced uh, companies out of necessity to experiment with remote work and they realized uh, it worked. Uh, it wasn't perfect. Uh, there's uh, still value in having face-to-face get-togethers, uh, but it wasn't the end of the world to have uh, workforces distributed. And so when you have companies like Google saying, 20% of our workforce is going to be permanently remote and 20% can move to other parts of the country. Uh, that uh, is a concrete signal uh, in the marketplace uh, that the opportunity to seed digital op- jobs in different places is one that can uh, make market sense. And then the question becomes, uh, how do we uh, help scale that? How do we help accelerate that? How do we do that in a way uh, that is equitable? Uh, But I guess the biggest thing I think people have realized for better or worse is uh, tech issues are not niche niche issues. I mean, it used to be that, okay, go do tech. And uh, people used to think uh, uh, there's some complicated IP or some complicated tax policy. And now they see, wow, technology is at the center of uh, what it means in the economy. And it's at the center of what it means in our democracy, in terms of social media. And we better get this right. We better figure it out. And we better give people agency uh, over these digital forces uh, if we want to truly have uh, a nation where uh, it's not just people in Silicon Valley calling the shots. 
That's all the time we have for today's program. I want to thank you wherever you were watching or listening for joining us this hour. I want to thank Representative Rokana, Matt Dunn, and Katie Knight for joining us for today's Commonwealth Club program. The program will soon be placed on the Commonwealth Club website, where we encourage you to view it, share it, tell other people about it, or if you want to relive some of the chewier and more interesting parts of the conversation, go there and watch again. I'm Ray Suarez. This is the Commonwealth Club program, and we're now adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.